So I'm going to talk about prep this morning. And let's start with a question. Do you have a patient who's been on PrEP, either through a clinical trial or prescription or whatever way? Okay, 14% of you said yes. 81% said no. So this is interesting. At, at, at repeated meetings, this number is certainly going up. And then a second question, have you yourself prescribed PrEP to a patient? said yes. All right, so let's talk about PrEP. Why do we need new strategies for prevention? And the reason is illustrated on this slide that was published in JAMA and then updated recently by the CDC. The arrow points to the line of how many new HIV infections occur in Americans every year. And what you can see here is that about 50,000 Americans are newly infected each year. And that's a stunning number right there. But what's even more stunning, if you look there, is that the line is horizontal. So this is the same going all the way back to 1990. So every year since 1990, another 50,000 Americans are newly infected with HIV. So clearly, we need better approaches to preventing HIV infection. So the one I'm going to focus on is PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis. And the hypothesis is that an HIV uninfected at-risk individual takes antiretroviral therapy. And by having the drugs in the bloodstream and the genital tract, HIV may be unable to establish infection. So we're using treatment for prevention. So when you start to think about that, using antiretrovirals in HIV-negative people, obviously we have a lot of choices. There are 26 drugs approved for the treatment of HIV infection. Which of these might be suitable candidates for prevention? And the ones that have really stood out are tenofovir and tenofovir combined with FTC. And so people consider that optimal PrEP candidates, because we're talking about giving these to healthy uninfected people need to be potent, safe, tolerable, and convenient. And that's why these two drugs really rose to the top of the list for most people. However, as we know, these drugs do have potential concerns. For one thing, they are also used quite commonly for initial treatment regimens and even subsequent treatment regimens. So they're used commonly in, in the DHHS guidelines. Tenofovir, as you know, with FTC are the preferred nucleosides. So that could be a problem, trying to prevent with the same drugs that you use for treatment. Drug resistance, consequently, would be an issue if it was engendered in the community. We're also familiar with the toxicities of tenofovir, um, both renal and bone, and then finally the cost of these agents. So there are pluses and minuses with these drugs. There is some animal data. In fact, there's a lot of animal data available um, looking in a macaque model, uh, this is some of the best data from the CDC that has been published. 
And what we're looking at here is daily or intermittent prep regimens um, in monkeys and then a shiv rectal challenge model. And you can see the different groups illustrated here using the drugs one at a time, so daily FTC or daily tenofovir and FTC um, in one of two preparations, or intermittent, and then in red is the control group. So not surprisingly, the shiv rectal challenge results in most of the monkeys in that group being infected. But you can see that some of the PrEP regimens actually are more protective and a couple are actually completely protective uh, of in this animal model. So this really gave us animal data, in vivo data, to move forward with clinical trials of these various regimens. So this is a big deal. There are six big efficacy studies that have been done in up to 13 countries around the world, as you can see, um, both in uh, the Western Hemisphere, Africa, and even Asia. More than 20,000 people on the planet have been enrolled in a clinical trial looking at PrEP. And many of these are now reported, and that's what I'm going to share the data with you today. So one of the, the first study that really caught people's attention was the IPREX study. Um, Bob Grant, local San Francisco, was the principal investigator on this, and this was published in the New England Journal in 2010. This was a phase three study of PrEP using tenofovir combined with FTC or placebo. The study population were HIV uninfected men who have sex with men or transgendered women, and this was an international study with sites in South America, South Africa, Thailand, and the U.S. And you can see uh, almost 2,500 men were enrolled and randomized to one of the two choices. Now, interestingly, in all of these PrEP studies I'm going to review today, the participants were counseled about safe sex and given condoms and encouraged that at every study visit. So PrEP in each of these studies is really added on to what we would be normally doing. It's not a replacement for standard counseling and for using um, condoms. So what you see here is the overall results of the study, and we're looking at the percentage who are HIV positive in the two groups. And uh, in the placebo arm, by the end of the analysis, 64 men had seroconverted to HIV positive, and that compared with, in the tenofovir FTC group, 36. So that's uh, just over a 40% reduction in the risk of acquiring HIV um, associated with a protective effect by using PrEP. Now, uh, one important thing was that 10 men were actually HIV infected at the time of enrollment and seroconverting. Now, clearly this is a group you want to be careful about because they would be treated with two nucleosides, and we know resistance would result, and it did occur in those men. So important to think about PrEP, that we need to make sure that people with acute infection are not being given PrEP. We had an update last summer at the IAS meeting, and uh, when all the statistics were completed, PrEP was associated with a 45% reduction in acquiring HIV infection. And in fact, when they looked closely in men who had detectable tenofovir levels, the protective effect was on the order of over 90%, 92% reduction in the risk of acquiring HIV infection. So clearly you have to take PrEP for it to work. And that theme will come up again and again. So this uh, illustrates that adherence is important. You can see that uh, the groups were broken down into to three depending on their adherence levels down at the bottom. So the least adherent group, less than 
50 to 90 percent or more than 90 percent. And in blue, again, is the tenofovir FTC. And you can see the greatest efficacy was in the group that reported that they had taken the most doses of the drug. Now, we did get some follow-up at the recent Quarry meeting in Seattle. They did a case cohort study looking at 48 cases of men who were randomized to tenofovir and FTC and seroconverted. And they matched them with three controls um, in the other group. And uh, one had report, one of the three controls reported unprotected receptive anal intercourse. When they simply looked at tenofovir levels, what you can see here is whether they looked at the visit with first evidence of HIV infection or in the three months prior to infection, the cases, those who acquired HIV, only about 10% of them actually had detectable tenofovir levels. And if you looked at the controls, it was more on the order of 40 to 50%. So clearly, again, you need to take the drugs for them to actually work. They used a separate experiment in healthy individuals, a pharmacokinetic study, to try to estimate how many doses per week would actually be associated with efficacy. And what you can see here is that taking two doses a week only reduced the risk of HIV infection in this model about 76%, but four or more doses was highly protective. What about drug resistance? So as I mentioned, the group on the right were the 10 who were seroconverting at the time that they entered the study. They were in acute infection. They had detectable viral load levels, but HIV antibody negative. And you can see there was some resistant mutations that were selected in that group. However, in the 100 patients who seroconverted on the study um, that were not in acute infection, you can actually see no resistance mutations were uh, detected in that group. What about adverse events? So creatinine elevation was more common in the tenofovir FTC group. You can see uh, 2% versus 1%, which doesn't reach statistical significance. Um, nausea was more frequently associated with tenofovir FTC. Again, 2% uh, versus less than 1%. And decreased weight was also seen more frequently in the tenofovir group. There were changes in bone as well. Placebo's in red here and tenofovir FTC in blue. And you can see when you looked at uh, bone mineral density in the spine, there were some modest reductions that persisted over 72 weeks, even in total hip, although those seemed to go up by the end of the study. So there were some detectable differences in bone. So this was the first positive result of PrEP. Again, about a 45% protective efficacy. The CDC, after publication of this study, made some recommendations, and these are the current guidelines for the use of PrEP in MSM. They're dated January 27th of last year. The CDC currently is at work on revising and updating this guidance. But what they recommended to us, to practitioners who might think about using this, is that before starting PrEP, document HIV antibody negative and importantly, rule out acute infection. Again, thinking about drug resistance. Creatinine clearance should be over 60. That's thinking about tenofovir. And screen for sexually transmitted infections. And importantly, hepatitis B. You, uh, because tenofovir and FTC both have activity, you would want to know if the person has hepatitis B surface antigen positive. They recommended prescribing tenofovir FTC, the co-formulated one pill once a day, and giving a 90-day supply. 
provide risk reduction, adherence, counseling, and condoms. And then check the HIV antibody every two to three months. Check the BUN creatinine at three months and then yearly. And continue to provide counseling for risk reduction, give condoms, and assess for STIs. So that's the current recommendations if you are going to use PrEP for MSM. And in fact, right here in San Francisco, the CDC set up a demonstration project. So this uh, headline from the Bay Area Reporter was uh, in September saying, SF set to offer anti-HIV pill more in a community-based type setting rather than a clinical trial. Well, that was in MSM. There came um, some confusing information released from something called the FEM PrEP study, which was using PrEP in a different group. <clears throat> and as you can see here, this was a double-blind randomized study of PrEP with the same drugs, tenofovir FTC, but this was in heterosexual African women. And you could see the sample size here was over 2,000 women who were randomized to either the PrEP or a matching placebo. This was an interesting group of women. We only learned at the CROI meeting who they were. Um, almost 60% were under the age of 25, so they were a young group. 70% reported that they were either at low or no risk for HIV, and over half used condoms. What we first heard about the FEMPREP study, though, is in point number three here. It was stopped early by the Independent Data Safety Monitoring Board in April of last year. And the reason they stopped the study was because after reviewing the data, they found it would be highly unlikely to demonstrate a benefit to PrEP in this patient population. This confused the field. Why would PrEP work in MSM and not work in women? And there were some theories going around, everything from behavioral issues to adherence issues to biologic issues, um, penetration of the drugs into the genital tract, et cetera. Both groups were exposed to HIV. In fact, about 5% in each group were acquiring HIV per year. So although the women felt that they were at low or no risk, there were HIV infections occurring. We learned at CROI what the reason for, for this finding is, and it turns out to be adherence. So if you ask the women were they taking the meds, 95% of the women reported that they were taking the study meds. And if you did pill counts, actually counting the, the pills that they brought back, almost 90% of the pills were missing. That is, looked like they had been taken. However, when they did drug levels in the blood, only 26% of the women had detectable tenofovir in the blood. Now, there might be a number of reasons for this finding, everything from the women not thinking that they were at risk for HIV, so really not being motivated. There's some questions about drug sharing um, with people who did have HIV infection. We don't know all the answers for this, but it does look like it is adherence is the likely explanation. Two more large studies were reported at the IAS meeting last summer of PrEP, one sponsored by the CDC called TDF2. This was, again, a double-blind placebo-controlled study that was done in Botswana in young adults between the ages of 18 and 39, heterosexual, sexually active, and uh, nearly half the participants were women. So 1,200 were followed over time. They were equally randomized to either receive tenofovir, FTC, or placebo. You can see nearly 600 in each group. Uh, good rates of retention with 90% of people continued to be followed. 
And here's the number of new HIV infections in each group. So nine in the PrEP group versus 24 in the placebo group. So that's a protective efficacy in this study associated with PrEP of a 63% reduction in HIV infection. There were no safety differences in terms of uh, side effects, and importantly, no differences between men and women in this study. The next presentation at the IAS meeting was the largest study of PrEP completed to date, and this is the Partners PrEP study. So over 4,700 discordant couples, one HIV positive, one HIV negative. In this case, the HIV negative person in the couple was randomized to receive one of two PrEP regimens or placebo. And this was done mostly in heterosexuals in Kenya and Uganda. You can see about 38% of the HIV negatives were women, 62% men, almost all were married. Uh, they had excellent retention, 96%, 97% self-reported adherence, and here's the breakdown of the results. So the PrEP regimens were either tenofovir by itself or tenofovir with FTC or placebo, and you can see roughly 1,500 randomized in each group. Here are the number of new HIV infections, 17, 13, and that compares with 52 infections in the placebo group. So if you uh, do the statistics, 67 to 75% protective efficacy for PrEP compared with placebo. And interestingly, no difference from using one drug PrEP tenofovir by itself versus tenofovir FTC together. Highly statistically significant difference from using placebo in terms of acquiring HIV. They broke down the infections um, by gender, men and women, and you can see that it's really consistent with both men and women in this largest study of PrEP. Again, we learned more at the CROI meeting earlier this year about the Partners PrEP study. They, too, did a case cohort study looking at people who seroconverted on PrEP. So those were the cases, uh, 29 people. And then they used a cohort approach using 198 random patients on PrEP who did not seroconvert. And once again, they looked at measurable drug levels. So if you looked here, you could see that people who uh, became HIV positive had tenofovir detected about 30% of the time in their blood compared with those who stayed HIV negative on PrEP where it was over 80% with detectable drug levels. Again, underscoring the point that people have to take PrEP for it to work. In fact, in the people who had detectable tenofovir levels, PrEP was associated in that subgroup with almost a 90% reduction in the risk of seroconversion. There are two other two other big PrEP studies that are coming. One is being done in Bangkok in injection drug users. That's a large study of 2,400 IDUs, and we would expect to see those results later this year. There's also a large study called VOICE, which is being done in the MTN is the Microbicides Trials Network. 5,000 women were randomized to one of five arms in the study. So oral tenofovir, oral tenofovir FTC, oral placebo pill, and then two microbicide arms, one group randomized to a vaginal tenofovir gel, like the one shown to work in the Caprisa study from Durban, South Africa, and then a fifth group got a placebo gel daily. This study was ongoing, and then last fall, we heard from the DSMB not once but twice that they were changing the design of the study 
um, for some findings that came out. So in September, the Data Safety Monitoring Board recommending stopping the tenofovir alone oral prep arm because of futility. That is, it wasn't working. Um, and they had an unblinded view of the data. And then just two months later, the same group said that the tenofovir gel was not effective in preventing HIV. There was about 6% of people in the placebo versus women who used the microbicide had acquired HIV. So they stopped that arm of the study as well, confusing us in the field because of prior studies that had suggested that a microbicide gel was effective in preventing HIV. And because of the data I just showed you, that tenofovir by itself seemed effective. So this tells us we don't have all the answers. And uh, we really haven't seen an analysis of why those arms didn't work in the voice study. So what's the current status in terms of regulatory authorities here in the U.S.? Tenofovir FTC, the data are sitting at the FDA right now. They have granted a priority review, meaning that it meets an unmet medical need. And an antiviral advisory committee, which is an independent group of experts who will come in and review all the data at a public meeting, is scheduled for next month. It should be quite an interesting meeting. The FDA has committed to a decision on approving tenofovir FTC for PrEP by June 25th of this year. So it will be very interesting to follow what happens. Okay. So everything I've presented on PrEP so far has really centered either on tenofovir by itself or tenofovir FTC. The CDC has guidelines published on their website about what drugs are appropriate to select for prophylaxis. And what they say is use the most effective drugs. Makes sense. No drug is 100% protective, that you must combine it with personal protective measures. Choose well-tolerated drugs, minimize side effects. Think about concomitant conditions like pregnancy or renal disease. Consider the possibility of drug-drug interactions. Daily medicine is often preferred. And try to pick the least expensive. All that makes a lot of sense, right? These are the recommendations for malaria prophylaxis. So they can be applied to other diseases. But one of the points is we have a lot of options, and that's what the next talk is about. When we think about malaria prophylaxis, there are proven options, and we have to match the best malaria prophylaxis, given everything we know about the person we're going to give it to, with the most appropriate. So whether, where they're going in the world and what their concomitant medical, uh, medical uh, conditions might be, we have lots of options. And so one could say we need similar options for HIV prep as well. So uh, the Division of AIDS at the NIH held a working group to identify the most important criteria. And these are similar to what the CDC said on their website. We want safe drugs. They penetrate target tissues, protect against HIV infection, long-lasting activity with convenient dosing, a unique resistance profile or a high barrier to resistance, no significant drug-drug interactions. Here's a good one. Possibly not a part of current treatment regimens. And then finally, affordable, easy to use, and implement. And uh, this working group actually ranked these characteristics and felt that the top four were the most important. And again, because we're talking about giving medications to HIV-negative healthy people, they felt that safety was the most important characteristic for a preventative medication. 
So if you take these criteria and you go back to our list of 26 drugs and you take out the ones that are cumbersome or associated with frequent toxicities or where the risk of resistance is probably overwhelming or that the side effects are simply just too much to consider giving to HIV negative people, this list of 26 drugs really gets quite a bit shorter almost instantly. I've eliminated all the NNRTIs and the protease inhibitors because of both side effects and uh, in the case of PIs, um, inconvenient dosing. So we're left with the drugs that we've been talking about, tenofovir and FTC. One could also consider 3TC. And then the two newer drugs that one might consider for prophylaxis would be Maraviroc or potentially an integrase inhibitor like raltegravir. The main argument against raltegravir, of course, would be twice a day dosing. And again, what we're trying to do perhaps is avoid first-line therapies. Another reason you might not reach for raltegravir because it's one of the initial preferred regimens. So a group of us thought Maraviroc-based regimens would be worth exploring for prevention. Um, as mentioned at dinner last night, Maraviroc is actually attractive as an HIV entry inhibitor. The mechanism of action actually uh, active against the virus before it enters the cell. And then there are a number of other properties about Maraviroc that make it an interesting choice for PrEP. So as I mentioned, it is an entry inhibitor. There is a safety profile for the drug now for five years in HIV-infected people. Interestingly, it achieves high tissue levels. So Maraviroc levels in vaginal secretions are three times greater than in the blood. And it's also concentrated in rectal tissues on the order of eight to 26 times. So the drug is actually getting to the genital tract, the area we would like to use it for um, to try to prevent infection. There is an animal model, a mouse model, where both Maraviroc and Raltegravir were demonstrated to be effective as PrEP in this animal model. Drug resistance to Maraviroc is uncommon in the community. And of course, uh, once daily dosing, although it's a labeled twice a day drug, pharmacokinetics support once daily dosing. And lastly, we simply don't use Maraviroc commonly for our HIV infected people. So again, separating the treatment from the prevention idea. There are also so some potential disadvantages for using Maraviroc for PrEP limited safety data in HIV-negative people. The longest an HIV-negative person has taken Maraviroc is 12 weeks. And that was in a study of rheumatoid arthritis. Maraviroc was not effective for rheumatoid arthritis. There is a question of increased pathogenicity. People with the Delta 32 mutation, remember that that actually prevents coding of the CCR5 receptor there is increased pathogenicity of some viral infections and case reports of West Nile virus. It's not an increased susceptibility to the infection, but in people that got the infection, they had a uh, more morbidity and a higher risk of death with West Nile virus. That's not been seen in anyone taking Maraviroc. It is from people with the Delta 32 deletion. There are other theoretical safety risks. It's not labeled currently for once daily dosing. There is some potential for drug-drug interactions. And importantly, it's not active against X4 virus. However, over 95% of HIV infections are with R5 virus. 
So we're about to start a clinical trial um, done through the HIV Prevention Trials Network and co-sponsored by the AIDS Clinical Trials Group. This is the 069 or NEXT PrEP study. There's uh, 12 sites across the country, and San Francisco is one of the sites. So this is, we're going to explore the safety of Maraviroc in PrEP regimens um, in a phase two forearm study in 400 MSM who are at risk for HIV, but uh, HIV negative. And the study regimens we're looking at are Maraviroc by itself, Maraviroc with FTC, Maraviroc with tenofovir, and the control arm is tenofovir FTC. Uh, we just finished the protocol actually this weekend, and so it's fully ready to go and be submitted to IRBs. So yes, the study will be coming soon. So let me stop there. I've reviewed the data that we have to date for PrEP in various populations. And again, tenofovir FTC is the one we have the most experience with. And I just wanted to acknowledge uh, the university and our funders for these projects. And lastly, I want to show you those fine-looking people who work in the Cornell HIV Clinical Trials Unit. Thank you for your attention. Great. So we have time for some questions. If you oh, feel, um, yeah, once you. One more question. Oh yeah. Oh, yes. We forgot. We were going to ask you. Now that you've heard that, how likely are you to prescribe prep compared with when you walked into the room this morning? More likely, the same, less likely, or not applicable? Always humbling for a speaker. Okay. Good. So some said more likely, some said the same. Very few said less likely. Interesting. <laughs> Okay, so we have the first question. I'm going to expand it a little bit. And the question has to do with, was there data in the partner's um, PrEP study uh, looking at condom adherence, looking at, at sort of adherence to some of the other strategies? And was there a correlate? We see tenofovir levels. I think the other question I would have has to do with, with um, not only the 90-day prescription interval, but also in, most, in many of these states, patients were seen more often to go over uh, STIs, um, if symptomatic or not, um, adherence and all that. And so what would be your recommendations if we do see um, some approval for, for, for PrEP? Yeah, I, that's an excellent question. And, and what we're really talking about are implementation issues for PrEP. How do you take these results from a clinical trial and really apply them to the clinical scene? And I, I guess I don't have the answers for that. I know that they did collect information in Partners Prep on condom use. Uh, that study has not been published yet, and I, I'm not aware of those results. I, I don't, I'm not sure that they publicly said what they were. Clearly, if people are using Prep, one of the biggest fears is that they will stop using condoms and stop preventing infection in other ways. So. I think the way that this is going to, we're going to learn about this, is demonstration projects like the one that's being done in San Francisco right now. Good. And I'm going to, the next question is an excellent one as well. I'm also going to expand a little bit. And the question is, what do you think of the um, VA Medical Center tenofovir renal data? We see some sense about when to start. We have patients asking for it. The question I guess I would expand it to is when to stop. Um, obviously, um, you know, HIV infection would be one indication. But with, is, most of these studies have, you know, 24 to maybe 36 months of, patient, of participant participation. But um, just wondering when to stop. 
Sure. I, two excellent questions. So as the CDC recommended, you want to make sure that if you are going to prescribe tenofovir for PrEP, that the patient has adequate renal function. So as you recall from the recommendations, they should have a calculated creatinine clearance above 60. And you're going to want to follow that on the study. So we do know that tenofovir um, is associated with renal toxicity. It's more common in people with baseline renal disease or risk factors for renal disease like hypertension or diabetes. Um, in this group, it's likely to be a healthy group of people. I think we should monitor it. Um, you need to stop if the creatinine clearance, the estimated creatinine clearance goes below 50 for sure. And, and it's another reason, I think, why we should be exploring other options for PrEP. This is an excellent question. It, has to do, and it came up last night in the discussion of the faculty, and that is many of us take care of HIV positive patients, but we may not be the primary care providers uh, for their partners. And so, A, who should be prescribing for the partners if that is going to be the recommendation or HIV negative? Who does the follow-up? We have the expertise in these drugs and the data, thanks to this presentation and other presentations. So who, who should be prescribing this? Yeah, great question. Can I uh, use the old-fashioned hand method? How many of you take care of HIV-negative people? That's who's going to be prescribing <laughs> So it's uh, like two-thirds of the room takes care of it. So I, I think partners of our patients would be a great group to think about targeting PrEP. Well, in my opinion, will PrEP be something we use for everybody? Clearly not. We want to focus it on people who really are at risk. Um, the group of all the studies I showed you, the group that had the best results were the discord with couples. If you are part of a couple with an HIV-positive person, you are going to be highly motivated to take PrEP because you probably have a daily or at least a weekly exposure to that person. So I, I have a feeling it'll be us, but I think uh, it, it's an excellent question. The other question that goes with that sometimes is, well, who's paying for PrEP? And some of the insurance companies actually are paying for it now, interestingly. If the FDA approves PrEP, and uh, again, I'm not sure what they're going to do, but they'll review the data, then insurance companies and Medicaid and others will likely need to be paying for it if it's FDA approved. And the next question leads into the following question. So the first question is, in partner studies, um, do we have, what information do we have on the viral loads of the infected partner, um, number one? And number two is, were the novel infections and the uninfected person in those studies related to the partner's historic virus if they were undetectable or were they new infections? And I think we don't know this data. These are, these are great questions, too. We know the higher the viral load and the positive partner, the greater the risk of transmission. And there have been the, the um, 0.52 study, which gave treatment to the positive person in a discordant couple and showed a 96% reduction. Clearly, they actually linked the new infections and the negative partners not all of them were actual viruses passed by their partners. So people apparently do have sex outside their relationship sometimes. <laughs> which, which is a bit of the rationale for why we might need to use PrEP. Um, a question that often comes up, shouldn't we put all of our resources into treating positive people? Isn't that the smarter way to go? Again, because people have sex outside their relationships, maybe both would be a sensible way to, uh, to try to prevent HIV. And certainly the Sound School Department of Health is not only looking at um, some of these projects 
for PrEP, but also community viral loads and some of these other issues. So there may be a multiple approaches um, necessary. So there's a very specific question, and I think it's a good one, and that is basically, would you offer PrEP to the uninfected um, um, male partner uh, of a heterosexual couple um, currently reporting sort of use of barriers, um, but planning pregnancy by artificial insemination? Um, and so, or, or you could turn the, you know, turn it around. The, the, the female partner is negative, but the male is partner, but they want to get pregnant. Uh, and would you offer PrEP? And then number two is, uh, given the sort of list of drugs you uh, mentioned and the data only really with tenovavir, what would you recommend to this, um, particularly the female partner? Yeah, complicated question. It can't be answered in just a couple of, of minutes. I, people are thinking about using PrEP in this setting of a discordant couple who is thinking about pregnancy. So not only offering it to the positive partner, but also potentially offering PrEP to the negative partner as well. Of course, we got to think of a whole host of, of issues, including what are what is known about the association of antiretrovirals with uh, potential teratogenicity as well. And so the, this question um, is an important one because you mentioned several times sort of drug penetration into sort of vaginal and also rectal tissue. And so do you want to comment, number one, on sort of the kinetics of that, one of the levels drawn after initiating treatment? And number two, so and this leads to the question, basically, will any drugs work for prevention if taken before sex intermittently, um, you know, going to a party and uh, planning a day, a week, a month ahead of time to be prepared? And we don't know the answer, really. The um all the studies I showed you were administering PrEP on a daily basis, but as we all know, people would like flexibility in when they're going to use it. Many people may be using PrEP either episodically or intermittently, but we really don't have the data to back that up right now. There is a study going on looking at intermittent use of tenofovir FTC for PrEP right now. We don't have those data just yet. I think Bob Grant makes the point that it takes about three weeks to get um, adequate uh, intracellular levels of tenovavir. Uh, and so I think he would at least, uh, trying to answer that question, say, no, it's not a morning before or a night before pill, uh, since it takes at least three weeks. I don't know about other drugs like Maraviroc. Maraviroc has a similar issue, which is that it's obviously binding the CCR5 receptor, and it takes a finite amount of time to do it. I, I don't think any of these PrEP regimens are going to be the morning before and the morning after pill. I think people will have to commit to using them for the drugs to be on board. In these studies, when they re report to novel drug levels, are they serum, are they intracellular? What are they, mostly serum levels? It's just serum levels in all the studies that I showed you. There are additional um, investigations going on. We'll probably see more data. Um, there's uh, an abstract presented at Croy looking at um, sort of a, a more chronic measure of tenofovir levels by looking at red blood cell levels. Um, they called it the hemoglobin A1C for tenofovir. You could sort of get a feeling for the last three months how much tenofovir was on board by looking at the red cell levels. Um, another way that they're looking at more chronic levels of drugs is uh, hair which I think is overrated myself. <laughs> but uh, there are assays being developed to look at uh, antiretroviral levels in hair to give you a more chronic picture of our people taking the drugs. And then one last question briefly, I guess. 
Um, there's always a concern that prescribing a pill will actually result in increased uh, risky behavior, sort of related to the uh, couple questions ago. Um, and what's the data on that from these studies in terms of how behavior changed for better or worse? Remarkably, in every study that I showed you today, they did assess the behaviors over time, and remarkably, uh, unsafe behavior actually decreased in every one of the studies I showed you. You might say, well, how can that be? Why would they do that? But remember, these folks were coming in for frequent visits in the clinic, being counseled repeatedly, and just taking a pill reminds you perhaps why you're taking that pill, which is to avoid HIV infection in the first place. So each of these has shown, they call it behavioral disinhibition, um, that it went down in all these studies. Again, can we promise that if this is widely used in the community? Um, I would be cautious, careful. Good. Thank you very much, sure. Dr. Gulick. I think that was an excellent presentation and excellent questions.